Hello, everybody, and welcome to the 92nd episode of MTG Fast Finance, the podcast that never flips out over reprint risk. MTG Fast Finance is your weekly podcast covering the world of Magic the Gathering, finance, collection management, and speculation. A quick message from our sponsor, Face-to-Face Games. Face-to-FaceGames.com provides competitive pricing on Magic singles and sealed product, with shipping to both the U.S. and Canada. Check out Face-to-Face card pricing via MTGPrice.com, whether building your deck or stockpiling your spec. I'm your host, James Chilcott, a.k.a. At MTG Critic on Twitter. My co-host tonight, as always, is Travis Allen, aka at Wizard Bumpin', and we're here to help you guys make and save money playing our favorite game, Magic the Gathering. Good evening, everybody. Uh, glad to be here and looking forward to another great episode. Our show is sponsored by MTGPrice.com, the leading MTG finance community. Sign up today at MTGPrice.com to manage your collection, track your specs, and read articles by some of the best financial minds in the hobby. Travis, what's on the agenda this week? James, this week we have a episode in four segments. Segment one is our top movers. We will talk about the cards that have seen the largest increase in price this week. Segment two, we will talk about cards to watch. Those are cards that we have our eye on uh, as possible gainers with James. Uh, James has got a curious card listed this week. Segment three is our metagame week in review. We'll touch briefly on the Legacy Open and Modern Classic from this past weekend for Star City. And finally, our topic of the week, uh, we can touch on the FTV Flip series briefly, and also we're going to do a bit of a retrospective on the Masterpiece series, Expeditions, Inventions, and Invocations. Oh my. So let's get started in segment one, our top movers. First card of the week is Mantis Rider from Cons of Tarkir. We're looking at the foil copies, doubled up from four to eight, uh, assuredly all on the back of humans' success. Um, humans, you know, we talked about that last week as having done pretty well at one point, and it turns out uh, it won the Modern Classic the weekend after, so definitely worth keeping an eye on uh, for that reason. Or should I say humans as a strategy is worth keeping an eye on now that it's had success back to back. As for Mantis Rider, $8 foils, I don't love them. I would probably sell them. Uh, It feels like it would be really hard for this to climb much higher. I don't know. Humans is looking like more than a flash in the pan. In fact, it's looking like it's going to set up shop as a fairly consistent tier 2 to tier 1.5 deck at least. Um, as a tribal creature deck, it has uh, failings um, in terms of its ability to insulate against a metagame that shifts in its direction. Um, because, of course, there are all sorts of sweepers and answers for for creatures that can be brought to into play if that becomes a dominant strategy. Um, so it makes it hard for it to, you know, it doesn't it doesn't attack from so many different angles with a bunch of different card types. It makes answers tough. Um, it has the same kind of problem that Affinity does, that if Affinity gets too strong, there are plenty of cards like Stony Silence that you can load up on in the sideboard to um, you know, try to hate them out of the format. Um, all of that being said, um, humans <laughs> finished first at a, at a Star City um, Open, then placed first in a Classic the weekend after, and Collins Mullen, the guy who won the Open with the deck, um, rode it into the Legacy Tournament last weekend and didn't make day two, but managed to go five and three with a modern transport sport with just a couple of cards switched out. 
Um, and, you know, a win or two in the other direction, and that deck might have gone deep into the Legacy Tournament as well. All of that suggests to me that the depth of the Humans tribe over the last 10-15 years sets it up for um, a power level that is not uh, usual for tribal. You're not going to be able to go that deep on dragons in modern. Um, but humans, being one of the most popular tribes ever in terms of number of cards printed, gives it a tremendous amount of utility that is being brought to bear. And, you know, this is just early goings. This deck hasn't even been fully tweaked yet. In fact, I'm trying to set up an interview with Collins Mullen uh, in the near future so that we can um, run through a whole bunch of bad ideas for cards to add to the deck because there's so many humans that haven't shown up yet. Yo, sure. And I'm not going to tell you that humans isn't a good deck. It is certainly positioning itself to be one of the top linear strategies in the format, um, especially because it can be fairly flexible compare it to a garbage tier deck like Merfolk, which is essentially trying to uh, accomplish the same goal, but their creatures are generally less useful. You can see why humans is good. My thought is strictly $10 foil Mantis Riders are probably close to the ceiling because the deck is full of cards that feel like they could be... It's full of cards that have that opportunity. Like you have two Thalias, you have Mantis Rider, you have Mayor of Averbrook, you have Dark Confidants, you have... You know, the mana base, which is sort of unique. It's just there's so many targets, it's hard for the money to funnel into one card in particular. So I'm not disparaging the deck. I'm just indicating that I think that there's more of a ceiling to Mantis Rider than there may be in any other random card that is part of a recently successful modern strategy. And modern and Mantis Rider, as we said last week, is the card least likely to have any demand outside of the deck. Yeah. Um, you know, there aren't a bunch of other decks running Mantis Rider. It's been toyed with in Jeskai, um, Skies and Jeskai control builds, um, but hasn't never really landed there um, in any kind of major way. However, I think those foils can probably hit 15 um, if enough people pick up the deck. Um, I can tell you there's certainly demand built around the deck because, uh, you know, there was speculation fueling most of the spikes, but... The kites, the Japanese foil kite sail freebooters that I picked up from uh, Japan a couple weeks ago for four fifty a piece when this thing first showed up, um, were selling briskly at fifteen a piece all week on eBay. I moved several sets, um, and I'm debating whether to hold on to the last four. Uh, so, I mean, there's definitely people moving in on the deck, uh, and I guess we'll see where it goes. I'm, I'm not in a rush to sell the rest of the relevant cards. Um, I think that if you got in low enough and you've got a, a good exit strategy go ahead and execute especially if you got something to flip it into but you know some of the the sexier ones um you know your thalias and so forth that have demand across multiple decks um i think you're going to get a chance to exit a little higher <laughs> yeah and i mean i agree with you there i think other cards like thalia are definitely better positioned than mantis rider is um thalia being a good reason a good one because it's so much more useful than mantis rider is but uh we are now several minutes on one card <laughs> So tell me about why why did Chameleon Colossus, the FDV20 version, which is a fairly bad-looking foil. I have several sitting around because um, I popped a bunch of that set. Um, move from 225 to $5. Uh, I was hoping you were going to tell me. <laughs> I, took are, are, Rider, somebody speculating that, I took Mantis Rider first so that I mean, you could take Chameleon Colossus second. <laughs> I, I mean, Chameleon Colossus is a human. <laughs> That's true. Are people, are, and it's got pro-black, which is good against uh, cards like... Death Shadow. Um, it's not good against Fatal Push because Fatal Push can't... Tar- well, I guess it is yeah. good against Fatal Push because Fatal Push can't target it for two reasons. A, it's cost more than four, and B, it's got pro-black. 
Um, no, uh, uh, Chameleon Colossus is four. Oh, is it four? Oh, okay. But yeah. It's pro-black, so it can't be targeted by Fatal Push. So, I don't know. Somebody think, yeah. think they're going to slot this into humans? I mean, possibly. It could just be that it's been seen, you know, occasional sideboard play here and there. I know I saw a... Um, uh, like a mono green Nykthos type thing do well recently in one event and it might have just been like a moto and there might have been some chameleon colossus floating around in there uh, because it's it's you know reasonably useful and gives you devotion but there's certainly not one particular one i want there isn't one thing that has occurred that has been big enough to draw our attention at least nothing that's been on my radar if anybody's heard of what people are using this for let let us know it, it's a surprising card from ftv 20 to pop given what else happened this week but i guess we'll get into that a little later um it looks like um okay here's some place it showed up at the modern classic in cincinnati on october 22nd the fifth place deck was a green devotion deck maybe that's what you were referring to and they were running a chameleon colossus in the main. Uh, that was probably, and which I mean, when you say that out loud, it's like, oh, three weeks ago it had a one of in a random Star City deck. I don't know. I, I want to see that be a, like much. I don't mind that it's a random like a deck. I mean, five color humans was a random deck three weeks ago, um, but I don't like one ofs, <laughs> especially if there's not three more lurking in the sideboard. Right. Right. Okay. Uh, why don't? We go to the next card. You can start this one. So, Bloodbraid Elf, um, EMA, uh, non-foils, moving from $1.30 to 3 I guess people are speculating this is going to get unbanned. Um, I, I don't think that's going to happen. I, I'm not sure Modern is going to get any bannings, because they made a, a statement recently where they said, heading into the Modern uh, relevant Pro Tour, they are not banning ahead of time. They're going to look to as to whether they want to ban afterward. So if they're not doing the preemptive shake it up ban, they're only going to be doing the do we need to do something ban, in which case I don't think anything's going to change. I mean, modern is as healthy as it's ever been. There are, I mean, the, the main complaint about modern right now is that you can't metagame effectively because there's too many decks. Mm-hmm. But but that's not the kind of thing that they're going to move to correct because no. that's a problem for highly skilled players who want to get an edge it's not a problem for encouraging people to play a format yep i uh i agree we're in in simpatico on the idea that mm, wizards is not inclined to touch anything it's in such a good spot they don't really want to upset anything by unbanning blood braid and then accidentally having it just kind of take over uh it is certainly the top of the list for cards that could be unbanned and i when it was banned initially, I swore up and down that it was the wrong card, and they should have hit death right in the first place, which they eventually did. So I felt vindicated on that. But at this point, there's just no reason for them to take it off. It's you know what I I bet it is is I bet there were a couple articles floating around about how Bloodbraid is the most likely card to get taken off, and people are like, oh, all the pros said Bloodbraid should be unbanned, and then a couple you know few people went and bought because of that. Uh, you know, not really kind of thinking it through all the way. I, I don't love the spec. It's 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 as speculatory as a spec gets, and <laughs> it's it, it's so easy for this to just go astray because it's not a card that shows up in any other format. It's not a big deal, you know, essentially anywhere else. So if it doesn't get unbanned in modern, you just bought a bunch of copies of a banned card for no reason, and there are just so many better options right now. Um, why bother? Yeah. Okay. 
Next on our list is Terramorphic Expands from Time Spiral. We uh, Time Spiral specifically, we are looking at the foils a little more than a double up, like 250 to 6, 650. Uh, this is can only be just low supply, and it's the original foil printing, so there's a bit of an appeal there. But Terramorphic Expanse has been printed infinity infinity number of times uh and it's been in foil quite a few of those there are just so many foil copies of this card let me think of let's say one two three four five six uh six foil copies uh, off the top, real quick, um, from major releases so there's just a hundred thousand of these things uh, and that doesn't even count. I, I don't want anything no no I don't want anything to do with this card yeah Moving on. So Ancient Ziggurat is a, a major uh, land in the humans deck. And let me preface talking about lands in this deck by by pointing out that Uncharted Territory, which I told people to buy, um, was likely uh, premature because I forgot that there's the promo that went out for the standard leagues uh, for FNM. And I noticed that a lot of the stores are selling those online before those leagues have even started. Um, which means tons of those cards are going to be available for the next few months. And I think you want to get in on the lows when the glut hits the market and focus on those foil promos as opposed to focusing um, on the com- uh, the Ixalan Uncommon version. Um, so I'm going to pull back on that pick. I'm sorry. Um, you know, I don't do this often, but I definitely overlooked that fact. And I think that Ancient Ziggurat and the other card we're going to talk about this week were the uh, the more important uh, of the lands. So not surprised to see this the the uh, foils and the non foils move. Uh, was it the non foils for Ziggurat that moved from three fifty to ten? Uh, yes, it is because there was the non foils move from three fifty to ten, and then the foil and the premium deck series silver copy jumped as well. Those are one of my favorite local store. Yeah, one of my favorite local stores that doesn't seem to have updated their pricing for years um, had a bunch of ziggurats in their online store, which is like the greatest. I mean, it's not that uncommon to find a store that some random store in a random city that doesn't update pricing very often. But the fact that they they don't update the pricing, but they do keep their online store stocked is just the greatest. <laughs> that is nice. Um, so, yep, Angel Ziggurat humans it's because of the humans deck uh, four of there. It'll be useful in any other tribal deck. Um, I feel like Somebody talked about this card recently. Do you? Remember? Yeah, I think you can lay that at the feet of. I don't remember exactly who, but I think you can lay this at the feet of multiple MDG Finance writers lately because it was me. once five dollars. It. it was me. Came up. I wrote about it last week. Damn it, I was speaking for. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Next up is Shaman of Forgotten Ways uh, from Dragons of Tarkir. It, it, I'm sorry. It wasn't one of your picks last week. It was in it wasn't it, one of your picks last week. It was in my article that week. Yeah, that's true. And then I talked that's about true. it on the cast, and you told me it was that. bad. <laughs> I didn't say it was bad. I just said, keep in mind that there is an F&M promo. Sure, sure. Which is now basically sold out. And there was also a premium, Pimari, uh, the Slivers deck, which is also basically sold out. Yeah, true. So, sold until they sell, that doesn't mean anything. Yeah, I think that the, the, the foil... Even at 15, which is what they've pretty much posted up at across the three versions, I think you can still buy those. Like these, if this deck is popular, it runs four of this land. There's almost no chance that this thing's getting reprinted um, this year. So I think that you these foils could go from 15 to 30 pretty easily. It's possible if the deck really does become a staple. Yeah, and I mean, I guess that there's no. It's not that there's no chance. I mean, maybe the next Ixalan set 
could print this card? Possibly. I mean, I have got it is a tribal standard set, so and it would kind of fit with the like South, you know, South American Aztec Mayan theme they've got going here as well. Yeah, it, it hasn't been printed in a while because I mean, it's a Conflux card that it had an FNM promo. That's probably from the same year. Premium deck slivers. That was also a long time ago. So yeah, I guess reprint risk is is probably significant. That's probably your like Thalia. This the risk in the next six months is the tricky part here. You want to be able to get in and get out while it's popular before there's any indication that it's getting a reprint. Yeah, that is definitely hanging over its head for sure. Um, All right, moving on, we got uh, Shaman of Forgotten Ways, the Dragons of Tarkir foils moving from 6 to 18. This was the the mythic everybody assumed was going to be a big deal in Standard and never really got there. But people like Jason Alt were calling from the beginning that it was going to post up in EDH as like a, a fairly useful um, card. Because this is the one that uh, provides instant wins, right? It does. Doesn't it have... Uh, Yep, it taps for two mana uh, to cast creature spells, and it um, it biorhythms if you have power right. eight or greater on the table, if you have formidable, which, of course, in EDH is trivial. Bi- biorhythm is everybody's life goes to equal to the number of creatures they control? Correct. Yep, which is also a banned card in EDH. Right, so potentially it just kills half the table, depending on what kind of decks people have brought that day. Yeah. Yep. Alright, so yeah, I'm not, I mean, this is a single printing mythic with it that's got a few years behind it. It shows up in 5,000 EDH decks, so not tremendously surprised to see the foils jump up towards the $20 range. Um, some of you are probably holding some of those, and now might be a good time to consider you know, selling a couple test copies to make sure that the market is serious about that price. And if they are, then you can decide where you want to go from there. Uh, yep, I agree. Uh, next on our list is Blind Obedience from Gatecrash. We're looking at the foil copies here. Jumped from just under four dollars to about twelve bucks. Uh, I'm gonna. That's a fu- that's a funny movement. It's almost like you said <laughs> it's at four and it'll go to twelve. Yeah. <laughs> and so listeners bought it to twelve. Yep. Huh. So the question here is: Keep your eye on TCG Player results if you got a store on there or on eBay um, completed listings, and see if anybody manages to sell them at that price. Um, my suspicion is that if you bought up 10, 15, 20 of these, you're going to be on the slow bleed to get them back out because it's you know a relatively high demand card in EDH. But my, my experience with that stuff is that you're still only—it's not like you're going to sell 20 a week. You're going to sell onesie, twosie, heresy, heresy, theresy. Um, but that's fine. Because if you got in at four and you're going to unload somewhere in the ten to fifteen dollar range, then you're going to be happy to put that and slap that into a plain white envelope and collect your eight or eight to ten dollars in profit. Yeah, if if you bought fifteen, ten, fifteen, twenty copies of this, congratulations, because I could not find anywhere near that many to buy myself, and the market price is still four fifty. Um, so nothing has moved at those higher prices yet. But uh, as long as people stick to their guns, I'm sure somebody will pay $12 for it. So nobody race to the bottom and you will all win. Um, yeah, my advice on this kind of stuff is don't pull a SIG and panic. Don't don't <laughs> feel like if you, can't, if you can't get out in like two or three weeks that like the sky is falling. These are, you know, if, if the, the thesis is still true, that the card is in demand, that it's in a lot of decks, that people are going to need it, and that it doesn't face any immediate reprint risk, then... And, and you don't have something to turn and burn on. I mean, that's that's really one of the key factors is um, 
you know, you want to get in and out of SPACs as many times per year as you possibly can, because then your annualized profit is going to be through the roof. I mean, I try to aim, some people say they aim for three months. That seems like it requires a lot of talent and luck. Um, I aim for like the six to 12 month horizon for a lot of stuff. And that seems to work pretty well. Um, you know, some people seem comfortable holding for, you know, one to three years. That's going to be less impressive when you look at the numbers at the end, but um, can still be a reasonable value store and might outperform your your you know stock or portfolio. It'll certainly outperform your GICs um, and real estate in many areas of the country. But you know, if you don't have a plan for where the money goes next, and the thesis is still true, then you know go ahead and hold for a little bit, see what happens. Yeah, I uh, I have a lot of cards that I kind of buy knowing full well that they're not going to move immediately, and I'm you know you just have to be patient. And they do move. I picked up some Japanese foil privilege positions. I don't know how many months ago uh, for dirt cheap, and they just can kind of hanging out. And then I sold one randomly today because somebody decided they wanted to plunk down fifty bucks for it. So um, yeah, I mean when you're picking up stuff like this, you can't expect a really high uh, volume of sales. Um, which is fine because you're probably not going to find a high volume to buy anyways. And you kind of want, it, it plays into a high diversity uh, investment strategy rather than buying a hundred copies of this card and hoping to make it big. It depends on what we're talking about too, right? Like if, if you're talking about some card that appears in round three of the pro tour in Albuquerque and it's a new, it's a standard card that hasn't gone anywhere up to that point and it's rotating next year and it shows up and then three rounds later it's like disappeared off the radar and nobody else is playing it and you just draw, bought 50 copies then by all means go ahead and sell those back in through a buy list because you probably got the equation wrong but if it's showing up round after round and three of the major pro teams are on it um, and they're all doing well and it looks like they're going to make day two then you know g- go ahead and post up your price what you want to get back out of it but don't be in a rush to undercut people if you think it's going to be important in the format yeah it's a different thing um like and and sometimes like stuff starts really fast and then you know gets a little slower as the focus of the market shifts like for instance would you agree that the stuff we bought the masterpieces we bought in europe are not doing as well now as they were six months ago uh yeah i think so i mean there was a lot of activity a flurry of activity there at one point and it has certainly quieted down the hype, the hype has, has drawn off, and now we're getting a little bit of a more natural demand curve. And I was just thinking the other day that I hadn't sold one in about like 10 days or something. And then, boom, a Mox Opal sells for 180 or whatever, and I'm like, okay. <laughs> so that's fine. That That's a solid chunk of profit right there, claimed in six months. So no worries, no hassle. Let's move on. MBN. Uh, okay, why don't you give us our next one? The other big humans card making a move this week, Meddling Mage. Uh, it's only got two printings. I think uh, one was from Alara Block and it was a Conflux. I think it was Conflux. Um, and uh, there was the original printing in what's the Pakula one from? There was a Plane Shift. There was a Lara Reborn. A Plane Shift is a is a Pakula one, and there was a Judge promo on this too. Right. Um, so we haven't seen this card in a little while. Um, for some reason, I thought it was in Modern Masters 2017, but it's not, right? Correct. So it could show up in the 25th pretty easily. Like, it's kind of a... Uh, if they've got a multicolor sub-theme or something, um, this is the kind of card that could see reprint risk anytime, really, in the next couple of years. Um, and I'm not even sure it's too good for standard. Like, it could show up in a standard set. Oh, yeah, for sure. This is probably... 
I would say like at its worst in standard, right? I mean, like it's just so hard to hit people with it. Well, it depends how consolidated or, the metagame is and how, how well-known the decks sorry, are, right? I had that thought wrong. You are less likely to completely handicap a deck with Metalane Mage in Standard than you are Modern. Like, in Modern, you play it and you name, like, Desperate Ritual and Storm is not... They haven't lost the game, but it's going to be a lot harder. Whereas in Standard, you name, like... What do you name? Approach of the Second Sun? Whatever. They'll kill the creature. Do you name, like, their draw spell? Like, they'll cycle it. Like, it's just... It's much harder to... The, because they tend not to be combo decks that are so narrowly defined, they don't fold to the effect as much. This is a nice one to have popped. I had a bunch of these sitting around at five bucks, so I'm absolutely in the process of posting them for sale. Um, I think this is a get off the train situation for sure. Because if you bought them anytime in the last three to five years, you got in in and around that value somewhere in the three to six dollar range. Um, and if you can out them at like seventy dollars a playset. You're going to be happy to take that money and flip it into something that you care about. I mean, do that kind of thing a few times in a season and you can pick up a whole other deck. Yeah. The uh, the Judge promo spiked too, actually. I'm poking around here. Looks like it. Uh, the market price is like 25 26 but the cheapest copy is $50 right now. And very few copies left lying around yeah, anywhere. Cool. Um, the interesting thing there is that... Uh, I don't like that art as much as the Lara Reborn, though. I think the, the Pakula art is has a classical feel if you were around in that era, but the Lara Reborn art is stunning in foil. Um, and if I had to choose between that and the Judge, I think I'd get that one. Really? I mean, I guess it's yep. pretty solid. The, the Judge promo is much more uh, outside of the bounds of standard magic art guidelines. Like, the, the Alara Reborn Medlane Mage looks exactly like what I would expect a magic card to look like today. Whereas a Judge Medlane Mage reminds me a little bit of Thalia with the way that, with the, with the, that um, RPT Hugh Thalia with the way the perspective is played with. Um, so, I mean, it's not the Pakula one, which is like the cool one, the Pakula cool one. But it, I, I, I don't know. I think it's an interesting perspective. See, I think the Judge promo looks like teenage art and the... Lara Reborn one looks like masterful. Uh, <laughs> I mean, drawing fire, dr drawing fire is not easy, and and that is a good looking set of flames. It is definitely a little teenage-ish. Yeah, the judge promo. So anyway, Medley Mage did well this week. We're gonna skip right through this last one because I have no idea what's going on with it. Golem Skin Gauntlets from Mirrodin is an equipment that gives a creature plus one for each equipment attached to it. The foils jumped from, in theory, a dollar to eight dollars. Um, I'm gonna call that low supply unless somebody tells me otherwise. Um, I know of nothing that would have moved the needle on this card. Ah, uh, me neither. Your guess is as good as mine. Yeah. All right. So let's move into our picks of the week. Our cards to watch. Um, I'm going to jump in with the land I should have called last week, which is Cavern of Souls. Uh, short to mid time, time horizon. Confidence level on this has got to be a 9, I think. It, it was just released last spring in Modern Masters 2017. It only had one printing before that. And uh, it moved from rare to mythic in Modern Masters 2017. And in a master set, mythic means uber uber mythic because of the print run being so much less because it's not distributed outside of LGSs. And the print run is limited and does not go on for the whole year. Um, it doesn't look like... I, I strongly suspect we are not getting the Christmas 
um, Modern Masters 2017 release that we got with Eternal Masters last year because there are four products coming out in the next six weeks that are aimed at the Christmas market. So I do not think that's going to be a thing. Um, and there are not so many Cavernous Souls lying around in the $45 range. It's a four of in the humans deck. It plays right into all the themes, uh, tribal themes of the year that will be important to casuals and plays into the Commander 2017 decks where it was not present, obviously. Um, so between all of that, I think that by the time Cavern sees another reprint, and I think the most likely slot is probably uh, Modern Masters 2019, I think it's very unlikely we see it again this spring within the calendar year of when it was first printed. Um, that means that it probably hits 70 again before you, you have to get off the train, and <laughs> when we knew it was probably coming in Modern Masters 2017, I unloaded the set from my Legacy Slivers deck and got about... Uh, 60 or 70 a copy um, buying in now at 45 and then looking to unload again down the road while I use them in a five color humans deck in modern just seems like the quintessential um, M- MTG finance hobbyist move right like you, you you play for free you use it for a period of time and then you switch to something else when you need to exit this is the type of card that is almost guaranteed to rise in price and uh, but it's also difficult for people to make money on because the buy-in is so high. Um, but I definitely think that you're right on the money here, that this is not going to be $45 forever, and that you could pick up a $20 increase on these without really anyone batting an eye. Like, it's so easy for a card to go from 45 to 65 and to not really think about it. Like, you look at it at 45 and you're like, this card's too expensive. And then you see it at 65 and you're like, this card's too expensive. It doesn't feel like there's a big gap there. But it is a $20 bill. So, you know, if you can... If you can wrangle the money to, to plunk down, you know, forty to fifty dollars a copy, uh, and kind of hang on to those for a little bit, and you can weather any concerns about whether it'll pop up in uh, Rivals of Ixalan or anything, there is certainly a, a solid chunk of profit to be had on each copy. And I think it's important to p- point out that when people say like you're putting so much more into the card at forty-five or fifty, as opposed to say buying a bunch of cards at five. They're completely underestimating the number of times you need to like put a stamp on a on a piece of mail and handle it physically um, when you have a hundred copies to out if you're not buy listing. So anytime you can, I mean, it really depends on your hourly wage and rate and how you're handling your opportunity cost and all of that. Um, certainly, in the buy list article that I posted a couple of weeks ago, you know, one of the dominant themes was in explaining why I went into a beta tundra and not into a bunch of stuff that was going to appreciate faster. Was that I've got a backlog of cards to sell from this year, and that means you know because my time is limited every week and how much how many hours I can put into MGG Finance, going into a value store makes sense. Like it basically you're you're decelerating that piece of money, which is unfortunate, but if if you got a backlog, you need to deal with that. You got to clear your backlog before you try to get in on other stuff because you're just complicating things for yourself um, and and giving yourself more opportunities to make mistakes if you overextend the amount of stuff that you can manage. So to get in, you know, if you got to choose between chasing a bunch of small ball specs or just buying eight to twelve copies of Cavernous Souls. I say fire and forget on something solid like that, and then kick back and deal with the rest of your life. Uh, I mean, that is certainly a valuable perspective and one that uh i find myself considering every time i pull up ccg and see 11 sales for a six dollar card yeah exactly so tell me about your first back uh so i was poking around last week and encountered this it was uh caught me a little by surprise Nylia god of the hunt is in 
eight over eight thousand EDH decks, which I never would have guessed prior to this uh, that it would be so popular. But it is in fact like one of the most popular gods in EDH. Um, I guess people just appreciate the effect, but it is what it is. And foil copies are currently available right around twelve dollars, which is like ten dollars less than. For instance, Erois, which is one of the most other most popular uh, gods in EDH. At like, I think he's in maybe 10% more decks than Nylia is, and his price is almost double. So there's not really a reason for this discrepancy. Supply is real low. Um, I mean, and we're talking about the gods here. The gods are just cool cards, right? The enchantment creatures. Uh, I, you know, the foils here just seem wildly underpriced. Yeah, and it's got that lovely curve that we like on price where nobody can seem to make up their mind what they want to charge for it. So you've got like a fairly low number of total sellers, like 10 or something. And one guy wants 10.99, and by the time you get to the end of that list, they're at 24.99. So mm-hmm. you know, the the market's going to close that gap. And and one of the things that gets somebody to hit the buy button is when they see a price differential like that. If people see like 160 sellers on Snapcaster Mage and they all want 45 and they're undercutting each other by 10 cents. Nobody gets that impression that they better pull the trigger. Like it feels like the card's going to be lying there and they could wait a couple more weeks to pick some up. But if you see one for 10 and the next one's 15 and the next one's 20, you figure, hell, what? I may as well be the guy that buys the one at 10, right? Yep. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. Solid pick. Seems solid to me. Um, so. I'm going to forego my other two card picks this week and talk about (laughs) something else that I'm looking at because I think that, you know, I've been criticized in social media before um, by foolish people um, that in directing people to spend money on MTG Finance, we were leading them astray because they should be putting their money into safe things like their, um, what we call in Canada an RESP, and I guess you guys have a 401k, Um, the you know, your your savings vehicles, your primary things that you have at your bank or investment brokerage. Um, the, the insinuation being that MTG Finance is either is far more risky or much harder to be successful at than, say, stock buying and selling mutual funds or stocks or GICs. Um, and I think that's a bunch of nonsense. Um, first of all, most of the stuff that the bank tries to get you to buy, like a GIC, is such low interest. Like you're talking s- sub 4%. Pause pause you just for a moment i don't think gic's i don't think that term exists in america so if you want to just tell sure our international that's a guaranteed investment is. certificate i don't know what you guys call it down there um so whatever the low yield thing is the bank is always trying to get you to buy um that they claim is a good place to store your money is not generally um you know the next step up from that is a mutual fund which is a an accumulation of a bunch of stocks um, together, usually organized along some common theme like an industry, um, tech, um, or emerging markets or whatever. And, you know, that's a very solid place to have your money long term, but it's probably not going to do much better than 10 to 15% a month. And when you look at which mutual funds have done well and or not over time and look at the mutual fund managers, you typically see that it's like throwing darts randomly at a dartboard. Like the guys that end up super successful can't even really tell you what happened. Um, and then you can manage the stocks yourself. Um, and I would argue that there are more um, factors to consider because of the microeconomic and macroeconomic factors, both how the company is being managed and the economic environment that they, they exist within, both domestically and globally. 
Um, I think that your level of expertise has to be a lot higher um, with stocks, especially if you don't have financial training to begin with, um, than it does with magic, especially if you've been a long-term magic player. And on that basis, I think that MGG Finance is right up there with many other things as, as something that can be a reasonable place to be attempting to you know invest and profit. However, <laughs> it's also worthwhile to be uh, aware of all of the other things that are going on. And I'm sure that many of our listeners have, um, by this point, heard of cryptocurrency. Um, mostly, uh, most of the media coverage has been about Bitcoin. And over the last decade or so, this has been an evolving technology. Um, in a nutshell, cryptocurrency is essentially digital currency that's not backed by any particular government um, or bank, and that... Uh, whose value is derived primarily from the network effects of the software that drives the currency in question and um, the processing power that is afforded by the computers that mine that currency. Now, you don't need to really understand all of that detail, um, and I'm not going to be able to explain it uh, in the amount of time we have in a way that's going to be useful to you. But I'll tell you this much. Bitcoin itself, as... um, you know, the dominant cryptocurrency, um, is up 800% plus in the last year. And as much as I like to humble brag about the modest success that I have with uh, MTG Finance on Twitter to the benefit of our, our listeners, in the hopes that you guys will emulate the pattern of behavior and, and the choices that we're making to, you know, achieve similar goals for yourself, I think it's also important to be aware of all the other things around you. Um, and I think that uh, the time has come that anybody who's not getting up to speed on cryptocurrency to at least under- attempt to understand the basics and take a look at what the um, risks and opportunities are with cryptocurrency is likely going to regret that down the road. Um, I think I'm not telling you to run out and put your life savings into crypto, but ignoring it feels a little to me like ignoring Google and Apple in like the late 90s. at this point um there's a very solid chance based on rumblings in the financial industry in the u.s that the major trading houses which currently cannot cannot or do not trade uh, cryptocurrency are going to get in on that and attempt to sell it at retail which means that all of a sudden there would be this marketing influx of marketing campaigns talking about hey you can buy your bitcoin at bank of america if that happens uh crypto is probably going to spike pretty hard um, and there's all sorts of regulatory and issues that could come up from that scenario, and it's not guaranteed. Um, all of this is highly risky. But again, um, before you take a look at your next card, get up to speed on crypto and do yourself a favor. Um, so first of all, I refuse to call it anything other than Bitcoin. Uh, okay. I also hate talking about it because I vividly remember sitting in my office Oh, God, a decade ago, and a Bitcoin was 25 cents, and I was like, I should throw $20 at this, because who knows what stupid crap the internet will do, and I was unemployed at the time, and couldn't spare the $20, so I didn't, I just, uh, (laughs) ugh, the lost funds. It hurts. But, um, I I think cryptocurrencies 
in general are a medium that we are certainly moving closer towards as a society. And that is, uh, you know, if you ingest any sort of science fiction, that's what they all use, right? Like the credits from Star um, Star Wars and every other science fiction which has its own digital currency like that. Uh, it's the right type of idea. Bitcoin concerns me. Its history is fraught with uh, all sorts of malicious actors. Oh, yeah. You know, I've already been the victim. You got hit. I say you got hit Mount Gox, right? Yep. Like you said, you lost some money over there. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they absconded with like $12 million in Bitcoin or More something that. like that. It was hundreds of millions. Hundreds of millions. Okay. Um, and it seems like, and I, this is where I'm not as quite up to speed, but is there a centralized location for this at this point? Because at one point there were like multiple Bitcoin marketplaces or something, right? Or like exchanges where you could buy and sell them. Yeah, because it was Bitcoin, like they didn't all land under one. Yeah, because Bitcoin is decentralized. The whole idea of the blockchain, which is the underlying software principle, is that any transaction um, between two parties exchanging Bitcoin for whatever um, is being recorded across the entire network. So it's a distributed record of events that helps protect you in theory. But your Bitcoins are still can be signed over essentially to an exchange so that you can trade them more liquidly. And that's basically how um, all the Bitcoins at Mount Gox got stolen, was that they were transferred into the quote-unquote wallet at Gox, so they were basically holding them for you, and then they just took them. (laughs) Now, whether that happened, you know, whether that was bad actors external to the company or bad actors working with the company or bad actors blackmailing the company... Who knows? I, I'm not. I, I'm a little worried that I somehow funded Trump um, through Mount, Mount Gox. Um, I have no idea. But and so this is it's a complex subject matter, and and it's not trivial to get up to speed because there's a, a bunch of technical uh, shit that's unique to crypto that is so different than the way money has worked for the last couple hundred years that it will feel alien at first, but you know, do your due diligence and get read up because this could be the future of money. Um, the, the There's so much benefit to big governments adopting digital currency in the next 20 years just from the perspective of perfect tax com- uh, collection, right? Like in a world with no physical money where everything goes through a network where every event is recorded, taxes rocket close to 100% capture pretty much right away and what government doesn't want to be like getting rid of the massive inefficiencies they currently face in the gray and black markets siphoning off funds from the tax base yeah i mean there's certainly the advantages in that regards uh yeah, although, and there is this is really funny how this all comes around because our listeners here refer, refer to it as mount gox like mt dot g-o-x but mtgox yeah. actually started out as the magic online exchange mtgox uh so it really all kind of comes full circle here doesn't it i also yeah that one's really weird because he, he basically wanted to be tcg mm-hmm. player and then as crypto was developing he switched gears and <laughs> and formed this this massive exchange and it turned into a whole fiasco um and then he decided to be a bank robber. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. So, uh, but, but hold on, I had another thought here. I, I also saw another comment uh, floating around on Twitter earlier, like within this past couple of days, that um, every time 
a Bitcoin transaction occurs, it uses more electricity than it takes to power the average house for a week or something to that effect. I mean, it was like one transaction was a remarkable amount of electricity. Now that's distributed across the network. And so it's not all coming from one person. It's not like your electricity bill just you know jumped $10 or what have you. But it's certainly, if there is any sort of truth to that, there are clearly upper limits to how much you can truly put into the system. Now, that may be a fact, a facet of the way Bitcoin itself works. Um, it may be addressable in a second iteration of a cryptocurrency. Maybe they don't all have that problem. I'm not familiar with it. It's more of an illustration of some very unique barriers that could come to bear that may prove to be a upper limit on some of these technologies uh, in a way that perhaps we aren't envisioning uh, in, in traditional use at this point. However, none of this uh, prevents a, an explosion in value in these types of things. And it's not hard to imagine a world where uh, one Bitcoin is worth 10,000 instead of 6,000 or 15,000 instead of 6,000. Um, I mean, it's just, it, it doesn't feel like any of that was would need to be wrong, right? I mean, I remember when Bitcoin was a quarter. So saying that it was $6,000 would have been way, way, way more ludicrous to believe than it going from 6,000 to 10,000. So I am very cautious with this as an investment vehicle, possibly because I'm just bitter that I wasn't there in the first place. Um, but there are certainly some real world challenges. So I, I'm not familiar with the article about the power thing, but what they're talking about is that the mining of the Bitcoins is the people that are solving the algorithm that they're running on their mining rigs is basically solving a mathematical puzzle. And in the process of doing so, they're also um, handling all of the transactions that are happening in the Bitcoin network between all of the various parties that are exchanging Bitcoin for value in one way or another. And so if you take all of those com you know, those computing transactions and, and the fact that they're echoed through the network and you add up all the power that's being used, that's where you get that discussion. Um, I would argue that that's not really a limit, not really a limitation on Bitcoin so much it is, as it is an engineering problem. And as processing power through Moore's law is like doubling every X number of months or whatever, um, you know, it's going to that probably resolves itself just through more efficient um, power consumption um, on the mining rigs. However, the there are other things in play that might limit Bitcoin, which is uh, includes like the inflationary pressure of the value of the coins themselves, which are actually infinitely divisible um, or in theory, highly divisible. So like you don't have to buy one full Bitcoin for 7,000 or whatever the current price is. You can buy frac. I'll take one Bitcoin, please. Yeah, I mean, you can do that. There are ATMs in Toronto where you can literally walk up, slap in a credit card and, I and buy a Bitcoin. I remember walking through Toronto when I was up there for an academic conference a couple of years ago, and I saw a storefront with a giant sign out front that said Bitcoin. It was like 10 o'clock at night, so it was closed. And I think I stood there with my mouth agape. I'm like, yeah. what? Yeah. There is like a store that just sells. But what? I couldn't wrap my head around uh, it. Around the, the same, I think it was the winter of 2014 when we got our money ripped off at Mount Gox. And it put the brakes on a process that we were in at the time. But we were actually negotiating the purchase, me and three partners, we're negotiating the purchase of like five ATMs from a company out of Las Vegas. 
um, where we were going to set them up because the, the margins are really good. Like the, the fees you charge on those machines to sell Bitcoins are kind of ridiculous. Like they're, it's kind of like an ATM in a nightclub. It's gross. So when there's, and, and the whole thing was people were uncertain about the safety of purchasing Bitcoins online from other people. And especially in, in a country like Canada where it didn't have as many people that were holding them, the liquidity of Bitcoin was more suspect. And so these, uh, ATMs, could be pre-stocked with Bitcoin that the owners of the ATMs purchased and then uh, transferred out into, you know, uh, a receipt. You would basically like leave with a piece of paper that had codes on it that you would use to um, uh, that that were representative of your ownership, the transfer of ownership of the Bitcoin. Um, my understanding is that a lot of those didn't turn out so well. So I'm, it seems like uh, there was a glut um, and it, and the the real problem is the keeping those things with enough cash and the and whether your margins balanced against having to have armored cars show up and drop off cash bundles um, works out. Not so much whether or not you made good money at the ATM itself. Um, so the overhead seemed to be a problem. Um, mm. Now, but there is a limiting factor um, at, because the way the Bitcoin works is that early on in the process of Bitcoin mining, many, many, many coins were were released. Uh, per annum. And as Bitcoin moves towards, I think it's 2040 or 2050 or something like that, less and less Bitcoins per year are mined. So basically, it's on a curve where the number of Bitcoins that are going to be released all time is finite. It's not infinite. Um, and that finite, it moves towards that finite amount um, uh, more slowly as it gets deeper into the, the coin pool. Um, and so there's some worry that um, because most of the holdings for Bitcoin are speculatory and, you know, there hasn't been a tremendous amount of adoption, it's not like um, Target and Walmart are taking Bitcoin yet. Um, until we get to that that moment where, you know, you can spend your, your Bitcoin everywhere you want to, all your major you know, grocery store, your mechanic and whatever, that's going to be a tipping point. Um, but for now, most of this is like, you know, it might be 90% of Bitcoin that is that's speculation fueled. It's kind of hard to pin down. Um, some of the demand is coming from gray markets. So it was like a, actually a pretty big deal that people thought China might unban it recently. And now it doesn't look like that's happening. Um, because the thing in countries like China is that the banking system is heavily weighted in favor of the people that already have lots of money. Um, not that it's much different here, but I mean, like tremendously so. And so if you want to start like, a business that requires a thousand dollars in funding—it's basically impossible to get that from any kind of like traditional financial vehicle. But Bitcoin, uh, uh, ha, through the blockchain, allows you to onboard contract contractual details into the transaction. Um, it's one of the major advantages of cryptocurrency is that it represents not just a new way of uh, value exchange, but a method of um, controlling the details of the transactions. Um, and transaction logs. So like one of the the, per, the usages I've seen of uh, cryptocurrency is using the exchange of crypto uh, in supply chain management so that as crypto is pushed through the supply chain, you know, from the lowest level supplier that makes the like screws up to, you know, the, um, the yacht that has 42,000 products compiled into a single product. Um, at each level, you can add additional information through the supply chain. So if you have, you know, 20 steps in the supply chain from a nut and a bolt to a boat, then um, you can 
record all of the transactional details all the way down the line so that the person at the end has a complete history of of all the detail around where all of the parts came from in their end product. That's a pretty exciting technology um, and isn't really getting enough uh, attention. Anyway, we, we've gone pretty deep on crypto, a topic that we know a little about, but not a lot. Um, and I think that you should take everything we've said with a grain of salt, but you should also go um, get smarter than us. Uh, and and get into position because I think that this is of all the things you could be looking at right now that make MTG Finance look silly. This is the most exciting that's on my radar. Butcoin. Um, <laughs> my okay. <coughs> oh geez. All right. Switching back gears again. Uh, my last pick of the week is Sidisi Undead Vizier from you boy it just feels relevant after all that <laughs> <coughs> sadisi undead vizier i'm looking at the foils from dragons of tarkir uh currently in and around nine ish dollars um I, I like this up to a good 20 or so there's very few copies on the market again both between the pack foils and the promo printings it's in 17,000 edh decks and it is a repeatable demonic tutor not only does it work with um you know effects like panharmonicon to get multiple demonic tutors at once you can flicker it to keep getting them uh, it's also not a uh, completely inserviceable body so we have a extremely popular edh edh card it's only one color uh it, this is just to me is crypt gast essentially another crypt gast um cheap foils extremely heavily played low supply nobody's really paying attention at the moment yeah i got in on these like eight to 12 months ago bought a whole bunch of them yeah i thought i remember you talking about that yeah they're sitting around um i've been selling i, I sold some like in a flurry shortly after getting in on it then it really slowed down um but i have had no problem sitting on it because i really don't think we're going to see exploit cards show up for a little while i would guess that you're going to see um cons block exploit cards show up in modern masters 2019 and that seems like a pretty like likely landing point. So you want to be out of your foil sedices by like midway through 2018, late 2018, probably. Um, there's also the possibility that um, we're getting another master set next fall that we don't know about yet. Um, so that would be insane. we'll see, I guess. I mean, they did two this year. Um, and... If it works, then they're motivated to do two again next year. So I, I don't know what the... And I think that um, Commander Masters as a as a fall release next year could be a way of them testing just how much the Commander market will bear, um, which I think uh, could happen. Um, yeah. But I still like DC. I think you're going to get... People will get a chance to unload at very... At minimum, um, you're going to get a chance to trade these out in your local play group. Um, CDC is just good in pretty much any black deck. I mean, it's a, it de demonic tutors, um, and has death touch, so um, a lot of utility and very limited supply. And again, that same kind of thing where somebody's selling one for nine, nine, ten, eleven, sixteen, nineteen, twenty-two. You know, that's where you want to mop up. Yep, I agree. All right, because I picked it. <laughs> Moving right along, the. Uh, Legacy uh, open event in Washington, D.C. had 535 players, and the Modern Classic had 150. Um, the Legacy event, who really cares what happened, because this format doesn't move cards anymore, but Stoneblade, Loam, uh, Eldrazi Aggro was in third, Grixis Delver in fourth, Canadian Threshold in fifth, 
sorry, uh, sixth. Miracles yeah, and Storm. Yeah, Miracles and Storm rounding it out. Who cares? Whatever. Um, don't sit on revised dual lands forever. They're not going anywhere. Um, get out and put them into something that's going to pop. Um, I sold. Um, I sold two of each of my revised duels. I had 40 for years and years and then finally just sold half of them and I kept two of each for EDH decks. Yeah. Yeah, that seems, uh, seems fine. Uh, yeah, over on the over on the modern side, you had the humans win. They took first place. So and we talked about that quite a bit today. You had Blue Red Breach in second place. So that's an archetype that we've seen uh, poke around time and time again. Um, always fun to see that show up again. This was a, a slightly more controlling version than you tend to see. Uh, you know, you've got main deck, Blood Moons, and Spreading Seas, uh, Electrolyze, Cryptic Command, uh, three ops, because uh, that's now legal. So it's possible that this deck got a boost due to op, and we just haven't really seen that come to fruition yet. Uh, we'll keep an eye on that. Uh, but there is not a lot, I feel like, floating around in this deck that's unknown. Through the Breach is already so expensive because it's somehow dodged a reprint for years now. Um, so I don't think there's too many opportunities in this shell or at least this version of the deck at this point. Through the be- Breach is a, an invocation, though, right? So that there's it at least is. that version. Yeah, yeah I, but I mean, but, like, <laughs> not really. I, I hate I hate playing decks like this, though, that are basically control elements, and then you're waiting for two cards to come together. Like, when you have the Emrakul in your hand and, and <laughs> not the Through the Breach or vice versa, you're basically doing nothing in this deck with those cards. Like, you mean... You mean the best deck in modern for like three years that got banned after my friend won GB Pittsburgh with it? <laughs> uh, Splinter Twin, blue red Splinter Twin is what I'm referring to. But but the that was different because blue it, red control deck that doesn't win until it puts two cards together. The thing is that Deceiver Exarch and um, Pestermite, a you had more copies. B they could just attack. They could just be turned sideways and attack, and they had utility effects when they came into play Emrakul doesn't even enter play you have no way of casting it if, if you don't have the through the breach in hand i mean it's it's a it's a much weaker splinter twin hey this deck has one two three four uh five six seven no never mind you can't cast it no wait yes you can there's 15 mana producing lands in the stack you can cast Emrakul. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, no, I, I know what you mean. It is it is clearly not a splinter. It's not a splinter twin. It's just you know a similar concept. Less excited about that than I am about humans. I think humans putting up so many results so fast. Um, and I was I, th- I asked Todd Stevens about it on stream yesterday, and he said like he thinks it's it's a thing. Mm, okay. Um, two Eldrazi decks. No big surprise there. Those are con- yeah consistently doing well in all the formats. We're both big fans of all the Eldrazi all the time for the most part. Um, so there's that. That, in fact, hmm? that one's noticeable. Notable for four walking ballistas. Yes. Yeah. I think that I, there, you've been seeing a lot of that too, because both both of them had the four, right? I think that's yeah. just like standard at this point. That's stock. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, foil walking ballista, thought not seer, reality smasher, matter reshaper. These have all been opportunities to make money. Yeah. Uh, in fact, showed o- up again. Overpowered colorless creatures, go figure. Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, two Jace Friends Prodigy in the Infect deck. Curious to see. Wonder if that'll become oh, more that's... of a standard. Oh, that's a sexy, sexy little include. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Curious. And we got the list for FTV Flip, right? Like I was looking for it earlier, but I couldn't find it. But didn't we get the full list? Not that I know of. Were weren't people talking about how there was no Jace in it? 
they're speculating because we saw a picture of the front of the box. Um, you know, when you open up an FTV, you can see the three cards they want to show off. Uh, and and it included Liliana uh, uh, Heretic or whatever it is. The one from uh, Origins. Heretical Healer, I think. Heretical Heer- Healer as the front and center card. A new Huntmaster of the Fells art was on the left and a new Delver was on the right, which leads me to believe, led everybody to believe that they're probably not sandbagging Jace Friend's Prodigy. Uh, it does seem unlikely, although um, it, it is it is quite possible that they did not put him in FTV Flip, but, I mean, they're not dumb. They know that he's a popular and useful flip card, so it really makes me wonder if they just put him in Masters 25. But then they just printed a bunch of flip cards. Would they have, like, put slots on the sheet for flip, like... Did we establish that they can just throw one random flip card in a set if they want to? Yes, that was a change that came. Uh, I forget what set it was, but for a while we all kind of operated on the assumption that, oh, they can never do just a couple flip cards because it's a, such a process. So like we thought that the Innistrad flip cards were safe for a while. And I think it was Origins. They're like, oh yeah, we also figured out a better way to print these and now we can just put them in wherever we want. Which is why like uh, Ixalan has just, you know, like five or six flip cards. You know, there's not that many, maybe more than five or six, but there's not that many. Uh, you can just kind of sneak them in. So it wouldn't be hard to do five to 10 flip cards in Masters 25 for them. See, in Return to Dominaria, when we get the masterpieces back again, I'm convinced it's going to be Planeswalkers. Wait, what do you mean? What's going to be Planeswalkers? The masterpieces. Oh, in Dominaria, the master. Okay, okay, I, I missed the first half of that. Uh, I mean, possibly, but how do wait? How does that change? So you're saying you think that's where Jace is going to show up? Yeah. Yeah, I think they're going to. If they didn't put it in flip, which surprises me. Um, it, it surprises me that he's not in there. It surprises me that if he isn't in there, but they didn't put him in the in the three cards facing. That just makes no sense to me. Um, but here's here's something to explain Jace's absence. Jace fatigue is a thing they've talked about a couple of times on camera this year um, and in written works, where they were worried that one of their like preeminent characters was um, not popular um, and. <laughs> the the possibility that they were looking f- to highlight that character less um, for one reason or another is is certainly on the table, um, and they might have just just decided that there was or like there was a value max for the FTV sets. You know, like they don't tend to try to cram too much stuff into the FTV because they don't want them to turn into a crazy spiking product. Last several sets, they've made it pretty clear it's aimed at more of the casual collector market, as and they don't want us all stumbling over each other trying to get them for 150 to 200 dollars each. And a really nice FTV FTV flip Jace with new art would probably have been a pretty expensive card, right? Like might be 50 to 100 dollars. Sure. At, sure. At least 30 to 50. Yeah. Okay. Um, I mean, I'm cer- I'm certainly happy. I'm not I'm not holding a lot of jace but i do have a few foils and i have a few of the stcc black foils and i certainly don't want to see the price on those go down yeah i've got a play set of those as well so i am in the same boat as you hoping that it does not tank uh i guess time will tell on that 
Um, but I, I don't know. I don't see this as a guarantee that we're not getting a reprint on it. But I suppose, I mean, clearly it's one less place, so maybe. Well, we got to see this soon because the release date is November 24th and it's November 2nd as we're recording. So we'll be talking about this again in the very near future. For sure. Um, okay, so let's move on to our other topic then. That's a good seg- segue into... Uh, into the masterpiece series, I know you were doing some number crunching earlier uh, to kind of look back at the expeditions, inventions, and invocations. W- what did you want to talk about here, or what did you find? Well, I thought it was just this is a good time for everybody. You know, heading into the holidays, where um, traditionally in the last few weeks leading up to Christmas, um, there is a, pe- a bunch of people selling, trying to raise money to buy presents. And because people need their money for presents, there aren't as many buyers. That's traditionally a very good time to be trying to pick up some of the pricier magic cards because auctions, um, you know, uh, auctions on eBay tend to start closing at abnormally low prices, especially if you're willing to um, shop in the late evening to like wee hours of the morning. Um, there is a dramatic drop off in competition. Um, because there's just not as much free money floating around. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I've scored some really good, like, old school cards and, you know, some beta stuff along the way and some expensive, like, judge foils and stuff during that period of the year. And I think that if you don't, you know, if you're in a period where, you know, you're just kicking back and playing a little standard here and there and not really going too hard at the MTG Finance thing, you might want to save up your pennies a little bit so that you're one of the people that's got a, a war chest um, heading into that season. Um, that's going to help you out. The... If you've had your eye on some masterpieces and expeditions um, or invocations um, over the last couple of years, this that might be you know your best shot at a discount, um, you know at any point in the next year. So I also wanted to just take a look at what's gone on because we had a pretty you know where things have settled after the hype, um, you know around the masterpieces jumping after expeditions didn't do that well. You know, we made a bunch of money out of Europe this spring and still have some pretty good inventory on 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 tap that's still, you know, cranking out profit here and there. Um, and, you know, then we headed into the invocations and everybody was disappointed with the card frames. Well, not everybody, but a lot of people. And um, I was curious whether, whether you know, the prognostication from several people in the MTG Finance community about how invocations were going to do just as well as the inventions um, had come to pass. So I wanted to look at some of the, the stats about where the card prices were at. Okay. Right. So uh, let's just recap what we're dealing with here. Expeditions came out as part of Battle for Zendikar in the fall of 2015. We had inventions in Kaladesh and Ether Revolt. Um, sorry. Expeditions were part of Battle for Zendikar and Oath of the Gatewatch in fall 2015 and the winter of 2016. Then in the fall of 2016 and again in the winter of 2017, we had the Inventions. And Invocations came out spring-summer of this year, um, hot on the heels of uh, the Inventions in the very next set, Amonkhet Block and Hour of Devastation. Um, And there was 45 cards in the original Expeditions spread across um, both sets in the block. And then there was 54 Inventions and 54 Invocations. So I was surprised to note that the if you take the price tag of all of the cards in each of these subsets and you add them up and divide by the number of cards, the average price is actually higher on the expeditions, which are commonly thought to have been a failure, um, than it is on the inventions by almost $4. So it's about $71 average price for an expedition. 
um, whereas the inventions clock in at 68. Um, I think that's because the expeditions um, failed in the sense that they started really high because people assumed things like foil, like essentially foil promo Scalding Tarn and foil promo um, all your other uh, shocks and fetches was going to be a big, big deal. And everybody was going to want full sets and it was they were going to push into the hundreds and hundreds. And I think there was definitely people that assumed that by this point, those cards would be in the like five, six, seven, eight hundred dollar range. And instead, they're nowhere close. Like we've basically they've basically retraced. So the most expensive is still, I believe, foil scalding tarn. But you can pick those up for just about two hundred. And if I'm betting you can find some motivated sellers at this point that would sell them for the one, you know, one sixty, one seventy kind of thing. Um, and I'm, they had peaked in the 300 to 350, 400 range when they first came out and they fell back really hard. So, you know, the average price per card is the highest still, um, because they retraced so much. And I think that retracing is where people feel they were a failure because any of the vendors and or speculators that bought in on them are still sitting on them for the most part. Um, I did manage to make some money on horizon canopies this year when they spiked, um, but I'm still stuck holding a few of those that I can't really sell profitably, and they may end up going to a buy list depending on how long um, uh, I end up waiting on them. Um, when we look at the inventions, um, they are somewhat held back by you know the lower 20, things like uh, Meekstone and Champion's Helm and Static Orb and Mind's Eye and Sundering Titan that see occasional EDH play, but not really anything outside of that. And Boyd, simultaneously from the top end, where you know the most important EDH cards have made made us and a lot of people a lot of money this year, um, as well as the four ofs that are relevant in modern and or legacy. So you have Soul Ring, Mana Crypt, Mox Opal, Chalice of the Void, Void, Mana Vault, Aether Vial, Crucible of the Worlds, Lotus Petals, and Engineered Explosives, um, all over a hundred dollars in the inventions. But the invocations are lagging hard. So, like, check out the the average value of these across 54 cards. It's at just $43. So, a full $20 to $25 below, actually $25 to almost $30 below the value of the other two sets. Um, hard to argue that these are anywhere near as successful or likely to post up as successful um, as the, the subsets that came before them, right? Yeah, it's clearly those frames have been divisive and whether or not those end up pulling north, uh, I mean, that could happen, but we are certainly looking at a longer timeline. They have not come out of the gate with the same excitement as the uh, the expeditions, which were overhyped essentially, uh, or the inventions, which were underhyped. These are just... We're under. I we're properly hyped with, and that hype was little. I mean, certainly, I'm glad I didn't haven't put much money into this. I do have some austere commands um, and some aggravated assaults um, on the premise that they will one day not be forty, but closer to sixty or seventy. Um, but I don't have high hopes for that happening super fast. And, and the cards where people have made money have been kind of, you know, the surprise ones. Like Scarab God um, masterpieces were available like under $60 at one point, right? And now they're sitting in the like 120 to 130 range with all of the demand inside standard. And let's, and let's be clear, and, those you know, didn't spike because there was suddenly like the card was super popular somewhere else or what have you. It was just because it got really good in standard. Like that drove that. I think there's an that. assumption... 
I, I think the fact that it was de- like this card's power is decoupled from its zombie reference um, does give people hope that it 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 is playable in other formats. I've seen people like streamers and modern using it as a one or a two of in, in various decks. Like uh, Todd Stevens runs one in his like Sultai brew. He's been running on stream lately in modern. Um, and uh, I've seen it show up in numerous EDH decks. It, it seems like it'll be a thing there. Um, not as much as Locust God, which is a third of the price, um, and potentially Scorpion God, which you can get for thirty bucks as a as a masterpiece. Um, but people have made money on Thoughtseize that that saw a spike earlier this year, um, and Force of Wills fell off hard. I mean, that was I think they were priced in the two hundred and fifty to three hundred range when it was first announced, right? And you can get them in the like 150, 160 range now from motivated sellers. Uh, yeah, that's certain. I mean, that's not too surprising just because you would expect that to start obscenely high and then pull back as people realize they don't actually need it that badly. Well, the thing is, like, again, there's, there's just not that much legacy going on. And more importantly, most legacy players have their decks. And so that's why the format doesn't really drive finance anymore is, is not because those people don't spend money. They do, but they already have. And you, for them to switch into a whole other archetype is so expensive. Like the thing in Legacy is, it's not the friction; uh, it's both the friction of new people entering the format, as well as the friction of switching decks. Because so, some of the decks have very few cards in common. Um, so to move from something like your Sultai build into your Show and Tell build or whatever may only have less than 20% of the stuff in common. And usually it's going to be like blue cantrips or whatever, or your Force of Wills that are, are going to be um, useful across multiple decks. But the you know that, that friction makes that format super unexciting um, from an MTG Finance perspective. And you know it's interesting because the invocations with a frame that everybody liked, I think would have been a different story, but they built up a lot of negative momentum uh, uh, along those lines. And they're also a, a fairly weird mix of cards because of the way they themed them. Um, whereas the inventions are, you know, kind of a best of treasure trove of the best artifacts of all time. The invocations are a mixed bag of like a little bit for everybody that I think thematically there's some weakness there too, that it doesn't really like cling together as something you want a full set of that you want to show off in a binder. Um, one of the problems being that like a lot of these cards look similar um, on the table. So, I mean, they're not even like the kind of thing that is in- impressive Um just based on you know the exterior frame taking up so much of uh, the card uh, real estate versus the art, and the sad part again is that so much of that art was actually fantastic art. Is just and when you see it up close and writ large, I mean the play mats for the Titus Lunter Wrath of Gods are gorgeous. That's a fantastic piece of art, maybe the, one of the best Wrath of Gods ever. Um, and it's just super underwhelming when you see it inside the masterpiece frame. Yeah, I, you know, it's the frame is uh, polarizing at best. The art is tiny. Uh, the cards are a lot more narrow for the most part. You know, there are a couple good cards. Uh, but I mean, really, it's like there's nothing like Soul Ring in here. Um, there's nothing like Arcbond Ravager or Chromatic Lantern. You've got Force of Wills for a format nobody plays, and everyone who does play already owns them. And there are other promos, you know, foils of Force of Will at this point. It didn't used to be the case, but that's the case now. Um, and, you know, even the EDH cards in here are good. I mean, Austere Command is good. I've got a couple of those. Uh, but beyond that, like, there isn't even that deep of a well of, like, 
top tier EDH cards. So it's just such a smattering of cards that are like, you know, are certainly part of magic history. You know, you have, I think there's a lightning bolt in there, right? Is there a lightning bolt? No, there isn't. But there's chain lightning, that's what it is. And you've got, you know, dark ritual and damnation and, you know, some some doomsday, like cool cards that are part of magic's history. But the fact of the matter is just not a lot of people who need to buy those cards as it is, much less these versions of them. So, you know, on a long enough timeline, I do think that these scale up in price pretty well but uh i don't know if the opportunity cost is there i mean how long is the timeline though i mean if you look at these expeditions they they've been large they've been largely headed on a downward trend i mean we had horizon canopy pop this year for a little bit but it retraced pretty hard um, making it tough to to make money on like i was buying them i think i want to say between 95 and 100 on the floor at gp toronto when Mm -hmm. you were up and sold several that week and the week after but now it's registering at 140 so 140 after fees not super exciting right like that's like maybe i'm up 10 15 dollars after all that um on the remaining copies i'm holding and almost nothing else on here has made a move i i i think you can look at this as a as years and years right like so uh original unhinged islands for i mean for how long were those like three dollars or less i mean years and years and years right like was it a decade? I mean, the original Unhinged came out in like, what, 2001 or 2002 or something like that? Maybe a little after that, but it was not recent. And now they're like $30 or some some nonsense like that. So there's clearly, on a long enough timeline, a, the coolest version of a card can get quite pricey. Um, and, you know, we, we shouldn't expect, I suppose, to see these ever again. That's not a hard and fast rule, but I wouldn't expect it. Um so, you know, there is a future in which these have, have all doubled in price, but you could be looking at, honestly, it could be a decade, really. And the biggest, my biggest concern is not that they reprint invocations, it's that they go back to the well and reprint these cards somewhere else that looks cooler, right? Like, there might not be that many Blood Moon invocations, you know, they might never print another one again, but if they do an awesome art in a cool new frame, like everyone's going to want that one. No one's going to want the invocation Blood Moon. It's just not going to be that interesting, which is a problem for all of these cards. It's just when you talk about the invocations, that timeline is so long that it's unlikely that, that, that it's unlikely they won't top those cards especially with how aggressive they've been with reprinting you look at the island from unhinged and we didn't have a cooler island until arguably zendikar which was i don't know how many years later and even then it still wasn't cooler and even then the islands like even today the unhinged island is still probably the coolest basic essentially if you have them in foil so uh you know that wasn't topped but i'm guessing that damnation will be topped Yeah, I mean, the thing here is that the trigger point for us to pull, you know, to decide to push in pretty hard on the Masterpiece Inventions in the winter was that the supplies were getting so low stateside and Europe didn't seem to care and the supply was still high. Um, and, And that just set up a formula for success that seemed like it would be at minimum solid arbitrage and potentially play into a serious spike and and it ended up working out. But other than I think Horizon Canopy and Ancient Tomb, Ancient Tomb is the other one that saw movement in the expeditions, and I think Wasteland has shown a little bit of upward momentum. Um, but all the rest are sitting at inventory levels that are that are 
relatively stable. So, you know, some sell, but they get replaced by buy list and what have you. And we're just not seeing it drain out, even though that was like a full two years ago now. And I think that it's really about flavor of the month, right? Like the same reason that, you know, in May I was selling 10 inventions a week and now I'm selling, you know, two, three, four a month is because we're just, it's just not being talked about. It's not, there aren't articles being written about it. The YouTube channels aren't talking about them. They're on to other things. And with four new products coming out between now and Christmas, you know, that's where the focus and attention is going to be. For some period of time. And so I think it's a good thing that they, they made the decision to back off the Masterpiece series um, for Ixalan. I think that the um, the giving it a breather uh, is good because I think they're going to find they, they really can't go back to this well all that often. Not only do they not have that many compelling options, but you're going to want to, you know, sprinkle this in here and there. Um, so... Is there anything on the inv- the invocations list that has that you've been out purchasing recently? Recently, no. I bought some austere commands. I think that was the only one that I picked up. And I'm scrolling through this list here, uh, visually quick. I mean, attrition at thirty is possibly interesting. I don't have the stock numbers in front of me, so it's hard to know for sure. Um, even mind sensor that that card time kind of came and went. Uh, yeah, but I haven't. I have not even bothered to look at these cards recently. I think I checked the invention stock more recently than I checked this stock. I, I checked average stock for all of this stuff, and other than the the spikes that we've already mentioned and the ones that are known in, on the invention side, um, nothing has really the needle has not drained at all in the last six months on the stuff that wasn't already on people's radar, and that says to me like this is this is not where we want to be digging. Um, any deeper um, I have no interest in the invocations I'm going to take a, a look at invention, some of the inventions again before I go deeper over on the other side Bitcoin. oh well, yeah <laughs> I mean first I need to transfer a bunch of money into Bitcoin you know you know what I would you know what would be fantastic right now picture a buy list that, that stored value in Bitcoin why why would that be fantastic because then because you could dodge a bunch of transaction fees related to the the buying and uh, buying of bitcoin and just push a, turn a bunch of cards into a bunch of bitcoin so your you know your day-to-day budget's not injured would would you if somebody's announced that tomorrow would you send in a thousand dollar bitcoin order in cards i uh, well hold on i'm trying to wrap my head around this so you want somebody who instead of getting store credit instead of, instead of getting uh-huh. store credit a store says we'll we'll Pay At you in the same Bitcoin. rate that they would pay me in cash, right? Yeah. I, at the at the Bitcoin at the Bitcoin exchange rate to US okay, dollars. Okay, so what is the appeal to me there then? That you that by you don't have to spend cash that you may or may not have, and we're talking not necessarily about Travis Allen, but you know, the average listener that can't necessarily muster a thousand dollars to throw into bitcoin but might have a thousand dollars in cards that he'd be willing to turn into bitcoin if Uh, it was easy well i can certainly see the appeal for people magic players are degenerate gamblers and turning your cards into (laughs) literal lottery tickets is certainly would certainly be up the alley of many you know if you you know what let's take this one step further you can turn your if you set up a buy list where people send in their magic cards and you gave them steam crates and keys 
Now you're talking. That's that's a level of uh, of gambling addiction that I can support. <laughs> hmm. I mean, I think it's I think it's unfair to compare cryptocurrency, at least the major cryptocurrencies. I mean, there's a bunch of tiny little cryptocurrencies that are pretty risky. Um, but the ones that are reasonably well established, and there's only two or three, like there's Bitcoin, Ethereum, Litecoin, and a couple of others. Um, the to suggest that they're gambling is is only as true as your lack of knowledge on the subject matter. I think the the deeper you get into the research and the more um, you know about crypto, the more you will be you will the better position you will be in to make a decision is, I guess, what I would suggest. And I think that when you when you look at all of the factors, it's not going to feel like gambling. It's going to feel like cryptocurrency is the future. And then your next question is, but is Bitcoin the right crypto? There are a bunch of, once you get deep into crypto, there are a bunch of pros and cons. Like one way to think about it is that uh, Bitcoin is the dominant because it was kind of like the first one to the first of its kind. But it has a bunch of um, negative aspects to the way that it is coded and its policies and procedures um, that can be addressed and fixed in further iterations of new kinds of crypto. So I have zero doubt that cryptocurrency is is the future of money. I have some doubt about whether Bitcoin is is the one that is going to make us the well, most money. I, I, I mean, comparing it directly to lottery tickets may be unfair, but I'm pretty sure I can go dig up price history charts that, well, over time, certainly trend upwards, no question there, there are some wild rides in between. Didn't it lose over $1,000 oh, in yeah. value in a day on multiple occasions? Yeah, I mean, this is not for the faint of heart, and you shouldn't throw any money into anything that you can't afford to lose, especially if you don't know what you're talking about. Um, and this this is uh, certainly an opportunity to throw money foolishly at something if you're too lazy to do the research, which I do, which I do not advocate. Um, but for those that have been patient and ha- have held long term, it has been a very profitable adventure. I mean, there are people that are just set for life um, at this point on crypto. Um, I, I, have, I would... Sorry, go ahead. Finish your thought. I have friends in Toronto that pushed like significant money in when I chickened out and <laughs> and don't have much to worry about anymore. I, I would imagine that there's not a single person. I'm the if it's that. The only people left who still own Bitcoins who bought them at a dollar are people who have the key for those coins locked on an encrypted hard drive that they can't unencrypt or stored someplace that they have feverishly been trying to get access to that they still can't get into. <laughs> Everyone who bought it a dollar would have sold when the damn things hit $10 and been happy with their 10 times, you know, pickup, but whatever we've there, been going there, on. There's, on like, there, there, there's a great black comedy, like a, a Coen brothers thing about a dude who's got, who's like got a hundred million dollars in crypto hidden on a USB key he can't find. Right. Oh, I mean, I vividly remember a story, uh, about some guy who had several quote, like this, like four years ago, it was like 250 grand worth of Bitcoin on a hard drive that he had like left in a computer that got taken to the city dump or something like that. So I don't remember, I don't remember the details of the story, but I remember listening to it and it's like somewhere out there, there's a hard drive worth like several million dollars, but nobody knows where it is. Um, but let's, let's, there was, 
Hmm, go ahead. Let's digress. Let's digress. We've we've already <sighs> talked nonsense about something half the listeners don't care about for long enough. Sure. That's a wrap, folks. Yeah. <laughs> Where can our listeners find you other than Mountain Hawks? <gasps> Uh, thank you for indulging us. You can guys can find me on Twitter at MGG Critic as well as via my weekly articles on MGGPrice.com. And I'm Travis Allen. I'm on Twitter at Wizard Bumpin, B-U-M-P-I-N. I write every Monday for MTG Price. I do the Watchtower series. I also do the webcast, Cartel Aristocrats. And if you enjoy playing magic, check out scry.land, find magic in your area, recently updated to more than double the amount of events visible. So find your PPTQ today. I would also like to remind our listeners to check out the mdgprice.com Pro Trader service for just $4.99 a month or $49.99 per year. You can get early access to this podcast, fantastic articles by the best MGG finance minds in the business, and a sweet set of online collection management and buy list tools will drive better returns and save you money playing Magic the Gathering. All right. I thought that was a great episode. Uh, I am looking forward to whatever comments we may end up with after this. Uh, And I will possibly see you next week uh and i promise everybody i'll get caught up on show notes this week um baby does not always allow but i will catch up in the next couple days so uh take a look out for those on mtgprice.com and we'll see you guys next week for another episode of mtg fast finance Mm